And I believe in large part that's very, very true. And so what do we know about covenant in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant? And so when we talk about covenant, who are God's covenant people? Well, the Jews, Israel was God's covenant people. And, and what did that covenant look like? And what was the entrance into the covenant? Well, for, for little boys, the entrance into the covenant was at day eight, they're circumcised. And circumcision was the sign of the covenant for Israel. Did circumcision guarantee that those Israeli children or those Jewish little boys were going to grow up and be faithful men of God? It did not. How do we know that? Well, we can read the account of what happened in the wilderness where a whole generation died in the wilderness because they didn't believe. They were not of faith. They were they were circumcised. Every one of those that died in the wilderness were circumcised. They had the sign of the covenant, but, but faith did not manifest. So circumcision didn't guarantee faith any more than baptism guarantees faith. And so circumcision was the sign of the covenant given to those infant little boys. When we come to the New Testament... We see, and actually, uh, this is where, right where we're at. It was a great day to do this because this is right where we're at in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, let's just turn there real quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7, let's go down to... Let's begin in verse 12. First Corinthians 7, 12. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. Now, Paul's not saying what he's, what he's about to say is not inspired. What he's saying is there's nothing in the Old Testament that addresses specifically what I'm getting ready to tell you guys. And you'll understand that more if you would have read what was preceding that, talking about marriage and divorce and that type of thing. So he says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who is not, who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Now, that doesn't have any, that, the word baptism is not in there. But what does that mean that your children are holy? What does it mean that the husband is sanctified? Well, it certainly does not mean that uh, when two unbelievers are married and either the husband or the wife gets saved, it does not mean that then the unbelieving spouse is now all of a sudden saved. They're not saved by marriage. And likewise, the children that are produced between one unbelieving spouse and one believing spouse, those children are not saved. But it says that they're sanctified and they're holy. So how are we to understand this? Well, one way we understand this is that those children were to be counted as children of believers. So how do we understand that? We go back to what, what, what's Paul talking about? What's this Jewish rabbi talking about? Well, we don't treat these children as children born of unbelievers. 
or born of, born of parents outside the covenant. Now one parent has become a believer, so the other parent, though they are unbelieving, we, Im- we accept them into the covenant. In other words, they're welcome to come to the service. They're welcome to partake of covenant community. Does not mean they're saved. They partake of that covenant community. We preach to them. We teach them. We disciple them as long as they are willing. We impart to them the truth of the scripture with the hope and the expectation and the prayer that faith will manifest and they will indeed one day become believers. We don't automatically exclude them. So this is why Paul says, if the unbelieving spouse wants to remain, let them remain. Because you don't know, husband or wife, how your life, your salvation may affect your unbelieving spouse and bring them to faith in Christ. So all this is spoken of within the context of the covenant understood from the Old Testament. Now, today we often read these scriptures and we don't come from that place and we don't associate those things. And so we come into the New Testament and all of a sudden now the gospel is spreading beyond Jerusalem, beyond the the Jews, and it's going to the Gentiles and Paul is preaching to the Gentiles and there's these Jews that are going out and they're telling the Gentiles, you've got to become a Jew before you can truly be saved. In other words, you've got to be circumcised. Why? Because that's the sign of the covenant. And so in Acts 15, 23 through 29, you'll see there's a letter there written from the Jerusalem Council to the Gentile churches. And you can read the letter in those verses, but basically what that letter says, you guys don't have to become Jews. You don't have to keep the law. Abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and do not flee flee sexual immorality. Don't live sexually immoral lifestyles. Now, if we take that in the literal wooden sense, that letter doesn't say anything about you have to confess Jesus and trust in him. It just says you don't have to keep the law, you don't have to become a Jew, and don't be sexually immoral and don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Well, I can do that as a I could do that as a Buddhist, couldn't I? But that's not the point. We understand that they're talking to Christians. So in my faith in Jesus Christ, as I look to Jesus Christ as the only Lord and the only Savior, I don't have to keep the Jewish law anymore. I don't have to become circumcised anymore. Well, what is the sign of circumcision now in the new covenant. We well, you turn over to the book of Col- Colossians. Let's go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, 9, For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power, in him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working 
of God. So some people say, well, why does the New Testament not mention infant baptism? Well, in Acts, you know, it says that Paul baptized the household of the Philippian jailer. It doesn't give us the age of his household, but we can as easily assume there were children there as there were not. 1 Corinthians 1.16, Paul says of Stephanus, he says, I baptized Stephanus and his whole household. So we can either make an assumption that there were not children there, or we can make an assumption that there were children there. And you're free to make an assumption on either side. But what we can't make an assumption about is what does baptism mean and what does it represent? Just like circumcision was the sign of the covenant, circumcision didn't guarantee anybody's salvation. It spoke of entering into a covenant relationship. And so today when we baptize these children, this really is as much about the parents as it is about the children. So I used to tell people, we don't baptize babies, we dedicate babies. But if we were honest, and this is where, as a pastor, I had to come to, I had to come to a place as a pastor and say, you know what, there's more scriptural evidence of infant baptism than there is of infant dedication. Because the only infants that were dedicated were the firstborn males. This is why Jesus was taken to the temple and dedicated in the temple. But we see in terms of circumcision, what does Paul say? Paul says, you are circumcised not, not by hands, but, but by the heart. And then he links this idea of circumcision with the baptism, that this is our, the sign of our death, our burial, and our resurrection with Christ. And Paul goes on and he, you might say, well, only little boys were circumcised, so how could circumcised apply to girls? And I would submit to you, this is one of the reasons Paul is very adamant when he says there is now neither male nor female. He's not mixing roles. Paul doesn't say that to say that men are not the head anymore of a home. He's talking about our identity in Christ. Women have just as much right to the covenant as men do. And women have just as much right to the sign of the covenant as men do. We're not confusing roles. We're not changing the authority structure of things, that man is the head over the, the wife, as Christ is the head over the church. Paul's being very consistent with the totality of his, of his teaching here. Now, let me read to you our official statement of faith as a church concerning baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordained by the Lord Jesus himself. Baptism is connected with entrance into the new covenant community. Baptism does not save us. It speaks of the expectation of faith in a life conformed to Christ by the Spirit. That's true whether you're an adult or a child. When, when I baptize adults, after they've made a profession of faith, I baptize them with the expectation that their life is going to manifest what they're professing. And so adults that wanted to come into the covenant community of Israel that weren't circumcised, they had to get circumcised first. They had to make that choice to be circumcised. You want to be a member of this covenant community? Then you need to get circumcised. 
But children, they didn't wait till children were old enough to make the choice. They circumcised their children because of the parents' authority over that children. And those children were not circumcised as a guarantee of their faith or their salvation. They were circumcised as a sign of their faith and the expectation of their salvation. It was a promise that we're going to raise this child. We're going to do what the scripture says, raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. If faith never manifests in that child, that baptism will not save them any more than that circumcision would save them. Just like if faith does not manifest in the adults I baptize, their baptism does not save them. In other words, there's got to be, the tree's going to produce some fruit. And so here's the promise of Jesus. If we are good trees, we will produce good fruit. So the expectation of faith must still become the reality of faith in each baptized. The Lord's Supper is connected with ongoing covenant renewal in our unity with other covenant members. Together they are simultaneously God's pledge to us, divinely ordained means of grace, our public vows of submission to the once crucified and now resurrected Christ in anticipation of his return and of the consummation of all things. So as a sign of new covenant community in the church and the expectation of faith, children of faithful parents may participate in both of these ordinances based on the discretion of their parents' held belief. If you're firm in your baptistic conviction here today, we honor that. And you should raise your children if that's your conviction from the Scripture. If you come from a tradition where you were baptized and children are baptized and that's your conviction, that's fine. We honor that. But, but we don't believe in child baptism the same way Catholics do and other denominations because that baptism does not save you. I want to make that very clear. And really the baptism today is a commitment by these parents that they will raise their children in the fear and nurture of the Lord in the hopes and the expectation that one day these children will manifest the faith that they've been baptized into as members of the covenant community. So we don't tell parents who hold infant baptism that you can't be here. But we do tell them you need to understand very clearly what it means and what it does not mean. And that you understand the responsibility that you make towards your children and toward the body of Christ when you bring that child to be baptized as a sign of covenant community. And we make a covenant with you that we will do all that we can to uphold you to raise your children in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. And that we will believe with you and pray with you and expect with you that your children, as they grow up, they will come to faith in Christ. They will manifest that faith as a result of and that the sign of their baptism will become a reality. As they are baptized in the name of Jesus today. 
We baptize them into Christ in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit today with the expectation that those children, at whatever age, they're able to confess that faith, manifest that faith. And just like the sign of circumcision, we say that sign of the covenant has borne fruit. But that's not going to happen without parents and without a community of believers living together, worshiping together, working together, loving one another, speaking the truth in love. This is what covenant is about. And so we have entered into covenant in Jesus Christ. And in entering into covenant in Jesus Christ, we've entered into covenant with one another. And that's why you hear me harp all the time about understanding that we are a body. Because this is what the scripture teaches us. We're a covenant community. And as members of a covenant community, I'm not your Holy Spirit, but I am your brother. And as your brother, not just as your pastor, but as your brother and as your friend, I should be concerned about your life. And I should be able to, as your brother, as your friend, and certainly as your pastor, be able to speak into your life and say, I have some concerns or I've noticed this. How can I help you? How can I encourage you? That's what we need to do with one another. That's what we need to teach these children that they grow up. That's what it means not to grow up in church. Do I have to go to church, Mom? No. You don't have to go to church. Church is a privilege. It's what we are privileged to do, not what we have to do. Living in covenant community is not what we have to do. It's a privilege that we have that's been given to us by Jesus Christ. Raising all of us as a covenant community, raising our children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, the primary responsibility of that is with the parents and the grandparents and the immediate family. But we're not disconnected from that. So our lives need to model for these little ones, all of these little ones. Our lives need to model what it means to be in Christ. Our lives need to model the love of Christ and the life of Christ. Not with what we say to them, but, but what they're able to observe as they watch us. And parents and adults, the children are watching us and they're listening to us. What are we teaching them? We don't wait until they're old enough to understand the scripture. This is what we typically do. Well, when our kids get old enough to understand the scripture, then I'll disciple them. No, you begin discipling them the, before they're born. You read to them. In the womb, you pray for them in the womb. You begin discipling them before they're ever born. And you begin discipling them from, from that moment in, until the fruit of that discipleship comes forth. So we raise our children with the expectation. We begin discipling them from the very beginning. We teach them. They're members of the covenant community from the very beginning. We don't say... No, you're on the outside. You are not a member of the covenant community. You've got to wait until we know for sure. I, I came to the realization of studying the scriptures. Nowhere I, can, I can't find that in the scripture anywhere, that that's the way children were treated. Even Jesus, 
let the little children come to me. And so we begin the process of discipleship as parents the very moment we know that child has been conceived. That's the way it should be. And the moment they come out of that womb, we embrace them as members of this covenant community. And we rightly have an expectation that as we raise them in the faith, that faith will manifest in their life. Amen? So, bring those babies. You know, baptism wasn't a real complicated thing as I read it in the Bible. uh, uh, Victoria went to a baptismal service uh, for one of her nephews, nieces, nephews, they're twins. And uh, it was, you know, in a lot of churches it is. Um, It wasn't real complicated when the Ethiopian unit got baptized in the mud puddle out in the desert. And it didn't seem to be real complicated when uh, people were baptized in the New Testament. And there's nothing magic in this ceremony. There's, not, this, there's nothing magic about the water. There's nothing magic here. This is in obedience to the scripture to baptize. Amen? And so it's the expectation. It's what you're going to do from this moment on. It's what the Spirit of God's going to do from this moment on that, that really is important. So I baptize Gavin Clyde Fail into Jesus Christ, into this covenant community, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I thank you, Father, for this mother holding this child. And I pray for this parent, and I pray for this child, and I pray for this congregation that we would Uphold her, support her, encourage her, love her, help her as she raises this child in the Lord. Father, our expectation today is that as we have initiated Gavin into the covenant community, our expectation as he grows in the wisdom and the fear and the nurture of the Lord is that his life will manifest faith in Christ. And that one day, Lord, fruits of righteousness will be very obvious in his life. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. Bless this child, Father, and bless this mother in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our privilege today to initiate into the covenant community this child. We baptize Violet, Lily, Negus into Jesus Christ in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I thank you for this father and this mother here today. And I pray, Father God, that you give them wisdom as they raise Violet in the fear and the nurture of the Lord. We do this today, God with the expectation that her life will manifest faith in Jesus Christ one day. Lord, we thank you that she is a part of this covenant community, and we promise to these parents to support them and uphold them and walk with them and pray for them and help and encourage them in any way we can as they have
committed this day to raise this child in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We thank you for this blessing. And we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Praise the Lord. All right. Now, I want to say this. If any of you have any questions, and you just say, man, Pastor Jeff, I just really, I want to ask you some questions. I really, I welcome that. Um, and I mean that. Um, I, I'll be honest, this is, this, my two grandchildren that are here, I did not baptize them. Um, my two grandchildren have both been baptized, and I did not baptize them. Their father did. And we did not do it as a, this is the first public infant baptism we've had in this church ever. Um, their father baptized them. Um, and we did it as a private ceremony because in trying to make a transition from being strictly and only a Baptist-believing church. Um, and we said, you know what? There are congregations all over this country who have both worshiping together. This should not be, uh, this should not be something that divides us. We should both be able to have the liberty of our beliefs because if we are completely honest, and believe me, I've read lots from Baptist people who everybody will say there's no magic bullet pointing either or in the Scripture. But for me, as I study the Old Covenant and, and, and the things, I can't throw those things out, and I, I just see how those things are linked together. And so we said, you know what, we're going to let parents decide. If parents hold that conviction, then we don't want those parents to feel excluded here, one way or the other. So parents, you're free. If you want your children to, to grow up and be old enough to make a profession of faith, that, we respect that. That's the way I did it with all of my children. And um, so, you know that old saying, it says, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Listen, none of us should ever be too old to learn or at least be open to what other people hold as, as a conviction of the truth. Amen? So, let's get into what we... We wouldn't have much time left, do we? Praise God. Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And uh, it really was a great... Uh, it was a great day to do this because... We are in 1 Corinthians 7 as we teach through. We took a detour last week and we were in Numbers and we talked about walking by faith. And, um, and I appreciate you giving me the liberty to do that. We should always be open to what the Spirit of God might lead us and how He might lead us. And so we're going to work our way through 1 Corinthians. But you know, some weeks we may just feel like God's got a, a detour for us or something different. Um, but this book... I, I really believe uh, is very helpful. And I think today's, the baptismal service that we did today and the one that we're going to do next week is, uh, this is a very helpful book, book to understand some of these things. So let's begin here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I promise in 15 minutes I'm not going to try to go through the whole chapter, okay? But we're going we're gonna to work our way uh, down a little bit here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. 
Now concerning the things of which I wrote, uh, the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, now, normally I would just read the section I'm going to read, but I'm just going to kind of work through this verse by verse in the short amount of time that we have left. Guys, I want you to understand that what Paul, I want you to again understand what Paul is not saying here. Uh, Paul, we can't make a, a, a theology out of this and says, well, you know, the Bible says it's not good for a man to touch a woman. Um, how many of you, if we took that in a literal wooden sense, anyone that's married here, at least for sure, that, we'd all be in sin, right, guys? Um, so Paul is not talking about it's literally a sin to touch a woman. How do we understand this? Nevertheless, look at verse 2, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So, in Paul's day, in the Greek culture, being celibate, you know, y'all, know, y'all know what celibacy is. Celibacy is a vow that you take or a belief that you hold, let's say, as a man or a woman, that you're never going to marry, you're never going to have a, a companion um, and, and have an intimate relationship. And so Paul, the apostle, was celibate. He never married. He never had a wife. This was his condition. And so Paul says, evidently, what we can take from this is that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul. They contacted him and said, hey, we have some questions about some things, and we need some clarification. So Paul says, concerning those things that you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So in Greek culture, being celibate was really a dishonorable thing. It was not a good thing. The Greeks frowned upon celibacy. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, if, if you have PBS, I love PBS, and you watch the, the little mini-series PBS has on Sparta, the, the ancient city, the ancient Greek city of Sparta, you'll get some real uh, clarification of some of their attitudes about marriage and, and producing children. And so someone in the Greek culture that says, I'm going to be celibate, that they didn't look, that was not an honorable thing. So they're saying, hey, Paul, you know, we got some guys here. You're celibate. And obviously, there's some people here who are saying, I don't feel called to be married, and I'm just going to remain single, and they're catching some flack for this. So Paul writes, and basically Paul says, being celibate is not dishonorable. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. So there's no shame in being celibate, contrary to the Greek culture of Paul's day. But if you have a problem with self-control and you're susceptible to sexual immorality because we wrote to the Gentiles and said one of the clear commandments that we're giving you, you don't have to keep the law, you don't have to become circumcised and become Jewish, but you do need to abstain from sexual immorality. So he says, if you have a problem with self-control, then go ahead and get married. There's nothing wrong if you want to be celibate. But if you choose to have a wife, that's good. There's no, that's fine. But if you want to be celibate and you find yourself succumbing to sexual immorality, it's best that you go ahead and get a wife or get a husband. This is real practical advice here. Okay? So the sexual... So we go on. Let's, let's look at verse 3. So let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, 
but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. So what's he saying here? He's saying that the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife is an infection. It's an affection or a kindness. That word affection means kindness. It's a kindness due one another in mutual submission of their bodies to one another. Now, Paul's not contradicting himself. He says, look at this in verse in verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Well, how can they both be true? He's talking about mutual submission. In Ephesians, as a matter of fact, when Paul begins his discourse about marriage in Ephesians 5, and he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Before Paul tells a wife to submit to her husband, Paul writes these words in his letter. He says, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Who are we all submitted to? We're all submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is just giving practical, some really, he's actually answering some questions here that this church had. Now, I know in modern day America, we don't like to talk about sex in church. You know, it's kind of like taboo. And so we we just kind of skip over these chapters a lot of time because it's, it's, But it shouldn't be that way. You know, I think this is why we have so much dysfunction in our culture is because a lot of times we don't address these issues the way that they should be addressed. So Paul is really straightforward here. He's writing this letter to the church. and I mean, he's just putting it out there, dealing with it. Hey, you husbands and wives, don't deprive yourselves. Don't deprive one another of sexual affection. It's a it's a kindness due to one another. You don't have authority over your body, husband, the wife does. And, and, and wife, you don't have authority over your body, the husband does. It's the principle of mutual submission here. So sex is a kindness mutually given by husband and wife. We understand this is in the context of marriage because sex outside the context of marriage is called sexual immorality, and it's wrong. And it's not wrong because God thinks sex is evil. God invented sex, right? Sex isn't evil. Sex is a good thing. It's to be a good thing, a pleasurable thing. It's, it's, it, it serves a lot of purposes. I mean, none of us would be here without it, right? I think that's true. Am I right? I, I, I mean, if I, I wasn't real good in biology, but I, I, I understood enough to know, I think I can make this statement truthfully, none of us would be here today without sex. So God created sex for the purpose of reproduction, to fill the earth, to multiply it's not something we should be ashamed of. We need to hold it in its proper place. We need to honor it. So, you know, one of the things I think I said before was this, that sexual immorality, it's not so much about how sinful sexual, sex, sexual immorality or sex outside of marriage is. It's, it's about how holy sex within marriage is. We're to hold it in, a, in its sacred and holy place because it, it's an it's important part of our relationship. With one another. So husbands and wives are to mutually submit the authority of their bodies to one another and not deprive. That word deprive means to defraud and not defraud one another of sexual relations except 
with consent for a time of fasting and prayer and come together again. And he says to avoid temptation from Satan due to lack of self-control. Now, he makes this interesting statement in verse six. This is not a commandment, but a concession. He says, I don't say this as a command, but as a concession. So what does that mean? He's dealing again with issues here that aren't clearly spelled out under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament scriptures. And so he's, he's saying this. You don't have to be celibate, but you can be if you feel like that's what God's called you to be. You don't have to be, feel guilty about getting married or you don't have to feel guilty about not getting married. You have liberty in either way. But if you do get married, then understand how this relationship is supposed to work and understand the affection and the kindness and the mutual submission and the things that that go along with this. And so Paul's wish for all men to have the gift of celibacy as as he did was not a commandment. It was something he wished. And the wish for that was for the sake of the gospel. And we're going to see this as we get further into this chapter. And Paul begins to talk about the distractions that come with family life. That doesn't mean family life is bad. He's not saying the single life is better than family life. That's not what he's saying. He's just trying to help these believers in, in, in the scriptures, trying to help us understand these important issues. How do we hold these things in proper tension? How do we hold these things and deal with them in the right way. So not all have the gift to be celibate, Paul is saying, but all are to have the fruit of self-control. You realize self-control is is listed with the fruit of the Spirit. So we're not all called to be celibate, but we are all called to have self-control. And so Paul says, hey, you know, I wish all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God. This is in verse 7. One in this manner and another in that. So what he had, he called a gift. Those people that don't have that gift wouldn't consider it a gift. You might say, boy, it's more like a curse to me than a gift. No, Paul saw it as a gift. He said, this is my gift from God. God's given me this gift. And if you have that gift, there's no shame in it. There's no dishonor in it. If you don't have that gift and you desire marriage and companionship and intimacy in that way, there's no shame in that and there's no dishonor in that. But learn how to function in both of those realms. Amen? In verse 8, Paul says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widow, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. In other words, men and women, young or old, If your desire for companionship and intimacy is so great that that it, it is something that's within you, 
that you can't seem to, you know, very simply, marry. If you want companionship, then find companionship. So some people say, you know, I'm just suffering for Jesus. You know, I'm just going to. I'm just going to remain this way, even though it's just really a burden. Paul is saying, look, don't go through life feeling like you've got to carry this burden and you've got to suffer for Jesus in this way. If you, if you want to get married, if you need that companionship, if you're burning in your heart in that way and you desire that, then marry. There's no shame in it. So... Each person needs to come to that place. And Paul is just really providing um, some real practical advice here for those who are struggling with these issues. Uh, I'm single. I'm a widow. I don't know what to do. I don't know whether I should marry or not. You know, my question to someone in that situation would be this. Do you want to get married again? Well, yeah, I do, but I don't know whether God wants me to. Do you want to? Yeah, I do. Well, if if you want to, and that's in your heart, then the Bible says there's no shame in you doing that. So, verse 9, But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, to the married, verse 10, I command... Yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Why does Paul say, not I, but the Lord? He says that because we go back to Deuteronomy, and the scripture is very clear about these issues that Paul is dealing with here when he's talking to those who are married. He says, this is a commandment from the scripture. So this isn't my opinion. This isn't me. This is... The scripture. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, we're going to stop on this one. Let me just say a few things here. So, a wife is not to depart from her husband. If a wife departs, let her remain unmarried or reconciled to her husband. That actually comes out of Deuteronomy 24. Verses 1 through 4. And we can look at all kinds of reasons why divorce isn't good. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to go to the Bible. And we can see that it just creates a lot of hurt and brokenness. But you know, the reality is one out of every two marriages in our country fail. They end in divorce. That, that's true in the church or outside the church. Statistically speaking, however they define the church. So what do we do with the brokenness that exists? We deal with people all the time who come from broken relationships. And if there's any place, if there's anyone on earth that should be able to take and accept with a heart and an intent to mend and to heal the brokenness that comes from that. It should be the church. But the way we do that is to not compromise our beliefs or to to not deal with difficult issues. It's like talking about divorce here today. 
You know, divorce is prevalent in our culture. And so divorce becomes an uncomfortable topic because, well, you know, Pastor, if you talk about divorce, there's a lot of people out there probably who have experienced a divorce, been a product of a divorce, and you're just going to make them uncomfortable. So we really probably shouldn't talk about those things. You you realize that's how we've gotten in the mess that we're in? (laughs) Because we won't talk about things. We avoid the difficult subjects. And and if the church isn't going to talk about them, then guess what people are going to do? They're going to do what they've always done. In Moses' day, what did the people do? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Jesus says, "There's listen, in the last days, it's going to be like it was in the days of Moses. Every man's going to do what's right in his own eyes. Why does Paul address these difficult, uncomfortable issues? So that every man doesn't do what's right in his own eyes. So that we say, this is what the scripture tells us. So it says, husband, a husband is not to divorce his wife, period. Just There's nothing left after that. Which I think is very telling because who is the husband anyways? We go to Ephesians 5 and Paul says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So where's the gospel application in a husband is not to divorce his wife, period? The gospel application is this. Jesus will never abandon his bride. He won't. Jesus will never abandon his bride. If we profess to be believers, as a believer, as a husband, as a father, as a man, I'm not Jesus. But the Bible is very clear in how I am to approach my relationship with my wife and my family. And and here's what the Bible says. Husband... Don't divorce your wife. Yeah, but Lord, you don't know how mean she is. It doesn't doesn't say, honey, that wasn't about you. I'm just speaking theoretically. Y'all know I have a very nice wife. But, But seriously, it doesn't say, husbands, don't divorce your wife unless she's really, really hard to live with. And then if she's really, really hard to live with, then you're justified in, in divorcing her. That's not what it says. So what if you come from divorce? What, man, man, maybe you're here today and you've divorced your wife. Or woman, you're here today and you're a product of divorce. However it happened. How are you to live your life? Based on these scriptures, are you supposed to go through the rest of your life with guilt and condemnation? Absolutely not. Let God redeem your past, but also let God redeem your future. Learn from your past and learn how to walk into your future. You can't change your past. You can't. If some of you knew my past, you probably would be horrified. I can't change my past. can't neither can you but the bible shows us how to walk into our future in christ 
And this is why Paul deals with these issues, difficult issues, uncomfortable issues. And the church can't be afraid to deal with the difficult and uncomfortable issues that are affecting us today. You wonder why our world is the way it is, why our country, why our culture is the way it is. This is why. I firmly believe we bring it back to the doorstep of the church. If the church will not deal with these issues, how can we expect the world to deal with them? The world doesn't have the answer. We have the answer. He is Christ. Christ is the answer. So the the solution is not to make people feel better about their sin. The, The solution is to point people to Christ and help them understand that He will redeem them from their sin. And He will be a husband and a father that will never, ever abandon them. And so we should be men and women, people of God, who will never, ever abandon one another. Who would not abandon our families, whether we're blood or whether we're spirit. But through the difficult and the dark are the times of rejoicing. And great celebration. We are covenant people in covenant with one another in Jesus Christ. Marriage is a covenant. Everything associated with God revolves around covenant. What we did today is about covenant, it's about an expectation. When you stood at the altar and you got married, you had an expectation. And vows were said and they meant something. For some, those expectations were dashed. I have baptized a lot of people. And a lot of those people have not lived up to the expectation of what that baptism represented. I still have hope in God that God knows how to redeem all things, whether I can see it or not, whether I know it or not. So this is the importance of covenant. We enter into covenant with one another. And there is an expectation with covenant, but we don't bail when our expectations aren't met, just like we don't divorce our spouses when our expectations aren't met. Amen. Well, we're going to stop right there. Where, where were we? What verse was I on? Verse 11. Is that right? Okay. Well, we're going to start at verse 12. We're going to talk to the rest next week, Okay. This is a great chapter. I hope you come back. Uh, This really is important stuff as we teach through uh, 1 Corinthians. So I pray that you will. Let's all stand. Again, my invitation stands. If you have any questions about um, anything in the message today, anything that I've talked about, if you have a question about the scripture, you're wondering why I baptized two babies and you you didn't think we did that, Come talk with me. 
I would love to do that. I would love to have begin a conversation. Let's just bow our heads for a moment. I want you to think about the covenant that you have with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a covenant that was established by His blood. Just a few verses as we continue to teach here, we're going to see that the Scripture says that we're not our own. We belong to God. We're actually called slaves of God. And Father, I pray today that you would speak to our hearts, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, by the work of your Spirit, begin to reveal to us, Lord, truth that would change us, that would set us free. Lord, not that we'll all agree on everything. What a dull and boring world that would be if we did. But Lord, that we could agree on at least this one thing, that we are a covenant people. And our covenant is not based on us. It's not based on who we are. It's based on you, Lord Jesus. It's based on who you are. It was not our blood who established that covenant. It was your blood that established that covenant. It was not a gift from us that gave us salvation. It's a gift from you that has given us salvation. And I pray, Father God, that you would cause us to see one another truly as a covenant people, as a body of people, as a family. All of the language the scripture uses that paints this picture of intimate unity and commitment to one another in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would fight for unity, that we would fight for one another to see one another grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus that we would love one another enough to speak the truth in love. That we would love one another enough to bear one another's burdens. To carry even the things, Lord, that are hard and difficult. Beyond our understanding. I pray, God, that you would just open our hearts and minds to the wonder of your grace and your mercy for us. That we would begin to see one another from your eyes. And love one another from your heart. Not with conditional love, but with unconditional love. I thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning. Lord, if there's one here that does not know Christ, I pray that they would right now where they're standing, Lord, in their heart, cry out from faith and ask that the Lord Jesus would save them. He who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They shall not be put to shame. Father, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would save them and transform them. For your glorious name. If you prayed that prayer, if you've asked the Lord to come into your heart, if you've asked the Lord to save you, if you've cried out because you need salvation, you recognize that need in your life. If you've done that today, I, I just would love to talk with you after the service and just pray with you as you've made a commitment to the Lord. Amen. Father, thank you. Bless your people as they go from this place. Lord, help us to understand that our mission 
begins when we leave here, that our mission field is not within these walls, but it's out there. Help us, Lord, to serve you with the overflow of the gospel in our lives as you have called us to be salt and light to this world. In Jesus' name, amen.